thankful to be here with you this morning. We're going to jump. We don't have a ton of time this morning because uh, we've given some of time uh, over to uh, Jason Hardage, who is our, uh, our missionary um, out east uh, or west, depending on which your perspective is. Um, uh, yeah. So he's going to have some time today, and so I've given up a little bit of that time. So what I'm going to do today, whereas I might normally spend a little bit more time on this, what I'm going to do on, on the pictures and the illustrations and the, the types and stuff in our text today, I'm just going to sort of breeze through it, um, you know, my version of breezing through it. I'm going to breeze through it, and then over the next few weeks, before we get into our super psalmatic summer series, we will, um, I, don't, I don't know, I'm just... I just like to be funny with it. Yeah. Wonderment is definitely a word. Um, so before we, get into, uh, before we get into that summer sermon series, we will um, we'll sort of go through this a few more times. We'll be able to um, discuss the types, discuss the different uh, things that come from the Passover. And I have a feeling, I could be wrong, but I have a feeling this won't be the last time we discuss the Passover uh, either. But we're going to be in Exodus today. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to look today just at, just at verses 1 through 14, 1 through 13, excuse me. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. I'm not going to do much of a review from last week, but my, my question to you is, for this week, is have you been doing stuff, have you been implementing things in your life this week to try to restore or to try to build on your sense of wonder or your wonderment for the Lord? The wonder of His majesty we talked about last week, the wonder of our trust in His salvation, and the wonder that everything we do is for His glory. Are you doing things? Have you been implementing steps in your, in your life this week so that when you came here to corporate worship today, you started already, you came here with a sense of wonder in the Lord. Friends, I want to tell you it should be a weekly practice for all believers, should be a weekly practice for all believers to implement and to practice and to cherish those things that cause us to be in awe of our God. So that when we get here on Sunday, Sunday services are not just about getting some energy for the week. They're not just about, you know, getting my, getting my gospel on or, or getting my, my tank filled up. A Sunday morning service should be like when you leave the tank and the, and the gas uh, nozzle thing unattended at the gas station, and all of a sudden you look back outside from the, from the shop, and the gas is spewing everywhere. That's what a Sunday morning service should be. It should be unattended chaos. It should be, I mean, a little bit, you know. There should be, there should be order and everything like that, but it should be a, an overflow, an overabundance of the gas tank. And we only do that, we only do that by doing things throughout the week to reinstall and, and, and re-implement or whatever we need to do our sense of wonder, practices that cause us to have a sense of wonder in the Lord. If you haven't, there's still time. If you haven't, this week, there's still time. It can start today because Sunday is a new day. Yes. It can start today. And you can do a little bit tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and by the time you come back next week, you can be filled 
before you even enter these doors. It should be a practice of every growing Christian. I know that we'll go through seasons and times in our lives where that's not something that we'll do. But I guarantee something for you, friends. If we spend most of our effort concerned with the wonder and the majesty and the glory of the Lord, then we will have very little effort to spend on thinking about how our jobs have let us down, how other humans have let us down, how friends and family have let us down. We will be, have so little time to think about how disappointed we are with the circumstances of our life because we have been filling our lives with a sense of wonder and majesty and awe of the Lord. We will see it not just today, but throughout all of this time, we'll see things that cause us to restore our sense of wonder in the Lord, all throughout the book of Exodus, but also as we study the Scriptures. We're going to see many other displays. I want us to look today at Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 today, and this is the first part, the beginning of the institution of the Passover. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the, doorpo- on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on a fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. And with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all, this is important, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. Here's that answer to that famous question that's been asked multiple times. It was asked by Pharaoh. It was asked by Moses, who am I to say sent me? Jesus, the Lord says, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Will you pray with me today? Lord, you are so good. And it is so evident in our lives that you are the Lord. 
It is so evident in our lives that you are God. Lord, how you you sustain us. Not only first you saved us, Lord. You saved us. You regenerated us. It was a work done completely by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ in the plan of the Father. You saved us. But not only that, Lord, you are good and you are the Lord because you sustain us. Lord, you sustain us in sanctification and growing to be more and more like Jesus. And Lord, something so important and so true that for all God's children, for all God's elect, you keep us. You keep us, Lord, until we die and we see you again or until you return. And Lord, you right the wrongs of this world. God, we praise you and we love you because you are the Lord. God, thank you for placing the blood of Jesus Christ on the doorpost and the lentils of our hearts. Lord, that you could pass over the wrath, you could pass over with your wrath that was due to us. And though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They they be red like crimson, Lord, they shall be as wool. God, we are so thankful for your work in our lives, for your work in the life of this church, and the fact that you are renewing the world until you come. We pray and ask these things. We pray and ask that you continue in those in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week we began our discussion on the beginning of the last plague against Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. Based on the growing severity of the plagues from one to the next, you would think that Pharaoh might have a change of heart, that Pharaoh might relent some, but this did not happen. As a matter of fact, with every plague, Pharaoh's heart grew harder and harder. Now we know one reason, and we've discussed it in depth, one main reason that his heart grew harder and harder is that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart in order that his glory might be seen amongst the Egyptians, amongst the Israelites, and to everybody else who would read the story from that point forward. But another main reason Pharaoh did not soften his heart is because he was an idolater, and he did not have a sense of wonder in the one true God. His heart, his hard heart was a result of the fact that he was an idol worshiper. And when we are caught, or when he was caught in his idol worship, he was so focused, he was so tuned in on defending his gods and the worship of his gods that he tuned out what was necessary to worship the one true God. Pharaoh put his gods, his idols, in front of the one true God. So one by one, plague by plague, the Lord put Pharaoh in his place. But not only did he put Pharaoh in his place, he dismantled this polytheistic sense of worship in the Egyptian structure. As a matter of fact, verse 12 of chapter 12 says that the Lord himself will execute ju- himself will not will execute judgment not on the Egyptian people, but the Lord himself will execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. The Egyptian people were not judged. It was the Egyptian people who still hung on to their idols and to their gods and did not repent and serve the one true God. Therefore, the punishment was on the gods, Pharaoh included, and the byproduct of the punishment was on the Egyptian people who would not relent. 
In our verses today, we're going to be discussing the events, uh, some of the events, and just sort of a brief, like I said, a brief pass-through of the events that surrounded the last plague. So this, specifically the event we know as the Passover. Today we see the Lord handing down to Moses and the people of Israel Passover instructions. And I want to, I want to look at some of those today. The Lord instructs Moses that the month that they were in should be the first month of the year. And I've studied this a little bit. And what the conclusion that I've come to, based on studying other people, is that the Israelites followed two calendars. They had a civil calendar and they had a religious or a spiritual calendar. With the spiritual calendar sort of being the one that was mentioned today. So on the spiritual calendar, this month is called, um, it was later called uh, Nisan, or however you say it. It's spelled like Nissan, but I don't think it's, I think that's country way of saying it. But, uh, and would have likely started in the month of April. But that really isn't the most important part of the new calendar being mentioned. The most important part is that we, can, we should consider that the Lord mentioning that there would be a calendar, the Lord mentioning that there would be a specific day and a new year did two things for the Israelite. It proved two things for the Israelites. And this is not on my outline, but if you want to write this down, this is just sort of like for inquiring minds, I guess. It reestablished them as autonomous. One of the things having their own calendar did was it reestablished them as autonomous. It was both they were both autonomous from the Babylonians, who we know later they'll be in Babylonian captivity, but also the Egyptians. Their calendar was different. Their calendars were not the same. So one of the things the Lord instituting this month being the first uh, month of the year is it established them or reestablished them as autonomous. The other thing it did was it reestablished them as humans. It reestablished them as humans. See, here's the thing. And we see this from studying slavery in general, whether it was slavery in America or whether it was slavery throughout history. But you don't, you, you, you typically as a slave are considered subhuman. And according to those characteristics that the, or the way the Egyptians treated the Israelites, they were also treated as subhuman. And what the calendar does is this. The calendar gives that human being a sense of worth or a sense of value. Here's, here's why I think that. Here's why I think that. Because for 430 years, they probably spent most of that time not considering the days. The only calendar that they were on was the calendar that says, this is when you start working for the day, this is when you stop working for the day. So as that time progressed, the 430 years, they might have kept the calendar for a little while. Maybe a hundred years went by and they kept the calendar. But as they lost hope, and as they became, became more and more dehumanized, they likely stopped even keeping a calendar. They likely stopped even keeping the days. Days turned into months. Months turned into years. For, the, for some perspective here of just how long 430 years is, it might not mean anything to you, but the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock more recently than that 400, than 430 years, if that gives you any perspective, I think. I think I did if I did the math properly. So the pilgrims landed on uh, Plymouth Rock more recently than the amount of time that these people were in slavery. They probably had little use for a calendar. They just did what their taskmasters 
demanded. But the Lord, through this calendar and through the other events of the Passover, He is going to reestablish for them a people, a set-apart, a separate and distinguished people. He instructs them what to do over the next few days, um, which come to find out will be celebrated over the next few thousand years. Four days before the Passover, they were supposed to take a lamb. That's the tenth day of the month. A male lamb without spot or blemish, which was the best of the best. The lamb not, was not only without spot or blemish, but it was one just the right size for a family or maybe your family and the neighbor's family. It was supposed to be counted just right. If, the family was too, if your family was too small, you were supposed to join with your neighbors so that nothing would go to waste. There is a side sermon in there, and we don't have time for it, about the sufficiency and the specificity of the sacrifice of Jesus that I've gotten into before and we can get into again, but I, we don't have time for that today. So they, they killed the lamb and they took the blood and they put it on both doorposts and the lentil. So the doorposts, Probably on some of these houses, the only thing that was made of wood would have been the doorpost maybe and maybe some corners. And so it was like these wood doorposts and maybe a stone or some kind of hard supporting beam across the doorpost. And the blood was placed on those three things. Then they were to roast the lamb with bitter herbs and eat it with unleavened bread leaving nothing until the morning, but to burn it all up if, if anything was left over. They were to do this with their sandals on, their belts fastened, and their rod in their hand, their staff in their hand. What did all this symbolize? What was the purpose of all this? Like I said, we'll talk about this a little bit more through time, but we're going to go through this briefly. The bitter herbs were to remind them of the Egyptian taskmasters, and the slavery that the Lord had brought them out of. The bitter herbs were to remind them of their plight, of their slavery. The rest was there because they were to do what they were to do in a hurry. Remember how we talked about the Lord pre-looting the Egyptians? Remember how we talked about the Lord pre-looting the Egyptians? Well, now the Lord is saying, look, I've already won Here's how it's going to take place. Be ready to leave. You know how these first nine, Pharaoh has hardened his heart? It wasn't because I was losing. It was because I was trying to prove to him just how much I was winning. Be ready to go. This is the one. This is the final play. Again, the Lord, sovereign. He has his people dressed for victory. Before the battle even happens, they pre-loot the Egyptian people. Before the battle even happens, they dress for victory. Before the battle even happens, the Bible then says that the Lord himself would go throughout Egypt and the blood would be a sign that the Lord would pass over the house and no plague would befall that house. The death would not enter in to that house. The wrath of God would not enter in to that house. But the Lord said he would execute judgment on all of the gods of Egypt by killing the firstborn of all of the houses that were not covered by the blood of the slain and spotless lamb. 
The Passover, friends, is a wonderful historical event. And it's also a type that transforms or, or sort of uh, uh, brings the modern Christian's mind to the perfect Passover lamb that took away the sins of the world. And the Passover teaches a few things that we will go through together over these next few weeks. And I just want to point out two today. I forgot to tell Blake to change this on the, um, on the outline here, but I want to say, you can write it however you want to, but the Passover either marks or it reveals a freedom from slavery to those who live by faith. The Passover either reveals or it marks a freedom from slavery to those who live by faith. The Passover marks the setting of the people of God free. The Passover was the sign that they would be free. And I want to just point out two, two quick little things about freedom that I think will help us as we're growing in Christ, as we're growing in spiritual maturity. The Passover marked or it revealed that freedom from slavery, it revealed freedom from slavery to those who live by faith. But there are two caveats to that freedom. And the first is this, freedom to be who we're created to be. This is freedom to be who we were created to be. The Lord said for Moses to tell Pharaoh, and the Lord said it, let my people go so that they can be free, right? That's what was said. Let my people go so they can be free, right? Is that how it was said? No. Let my people go so what? That they can serve me. That they can worship me. That they can worship me. See, friends, the command of Pharaoh was so important because the Lord required and the Lord demands and gives freedom so that we then in turn can freely be the people that we were created to be and the people that we were created to be are people who worship the one true God of the universe. We were created to worship the Lord. The Israelites were getting we're not getting freed for freedom's sake, but they were being freed to worship the Lord. Friends, often we act, often we act like this freedom we are given in Christ frees us from conviction. We often act like it frees us from Christian responsibility. But actually what it does is it puts us under heavier conviction, this freedom that we have. It puts us under heavier Christian responsibility. At least subconsciously, we, are, we think we are free to do certain things. We think we are free to, to treat church gathering as we wish or, or to not participate. Or we think we're free to, well, you know, the Bible is sort of a command of God. But, you know, if I don't, if I don't really participate as God commands, you know, I am saved by grace through faith, not by reading my Bible. We put the works of God, we put the works of God aside at times because we think we have been freed, and at least subconsciously, we think we have been freed from the responsibility to follow the Lord in spirit and in truth, which is just not the case. It's just not the case. Friends, the, the, one of the major caveats was the, for the freedom of Israel was they were given freedom so that they could worship the Lord. 
And friends, that is a caveat, that is a major caveat for you if you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You are given freedom, not for the sake to be free, but you are given freedom so that you may worship the Lord freely and truly and rightly. We do things all the time like this. We miss church gathering or, or we don't participate. We don't read our Bible. We don't pray. We don't do the things of the Lord and we say, well, I'm, I'm covered by grace. We partake of, uh, of too much alcohol, one or a few or, or too many times, and we say, I'm covered by grace. We are friends. We're free to put down worship. And we're free to take up worship at any time we want. But the freedom that we have in Christ should cause us to take it up much more than we put it down. It should cause us to take up Christian responsibility much more than it causes us to put it down. It should cause us, it should cause us not to skirt the line of Christian responsibility. Well, here's the old life, and here's Christian responsibility. If I'm just somewhere over here, you know, the Lord's going to sanctify me over time. Friends, we are more than conquerors. We should excel and exceed and strive in the Christian faith. Now, I hesitate to preach that because what I also, there's the balance there. Because the balance is this, we are saved by grace through faith. Not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man should boast. But friends, we should strive and we should work. Paul says, not that I have attained it, but what? I press on towards the mark. I strive. He said, I beat my body, I beat myself into submission so that I can be more like Jesus. Friends, I want you to know that just because you're saved by grace, it doesn't give you the grace and freedom to do as you please, as little or as much. The Lord requires, the Lord requires our best. And that sort of transitions into the second point. This freedom is not just for freedom's sake, but it's freedom to worship the Lord freely. And it's freedom to give our best to God. And this is an important distinction, friends. Hear it. It's freedom to give our best to God and not to our idols. It's freedom to give our best to God and not to our idols. Friends, we have made a good work out of giving our best to our idols still post-salvation. We have done a good job of giving our best to our idols. And to this point, the Israelite people were, they were, they were um, forced to give their best to other gods. They were required to give their best to Pharaoh. At a minimum, they were required to give their best to the son of Ra. But soon that would not be the case. Soon they would be set free to give their best unto the Lord. Soon they would be set free to give their best not to the idols. They would not have to give their best effort, their best work, their blood, sweat, and tears to idols any longer. But they could give their best to the Lord. We have been set free, friends, not so that we can pursue our idols more deeply. And friends, I want to tell you, sometimes I think subconsciously in the minds of a Christian, that is what we believe. That we are set free so that we can 
subconsciously, I don't think anybody's probably ever said this. Oh, well, now I'm a Christian. I can pursue my idols even further. I don't think anybody's ever said that. But we subconsciously, at least, we are set, we believe we're set free so that we can produce our, so that we can pursue the things that we worship above God in a more strong manner. It's not why we've been set free. We have not been set free to pursue our idols more. We have not been gifted by God. We have not been blessed in sanctification. We have not been blessed with physical and spiritual blessings so that we can use them as a means of pursuing other gods. We have been set free, friends, so that the things that we once idolized can be put into perspective. Do you understand that, friends, the, there are good things in our lives that there's a, just a thin line between idolatry and something that can be put into the proper perspective. My children are a blessing from the Lord, but there's a thin line where I idolize them or I put them into proper perspective as a blessing from the Lord and as an image bearer of God and someone I'm supposed to train in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Our work, our finances... Uh, leisure activities, things that the Lord gives us for pleasure, there is a thin line between idolizing them and seeing them as a blessing and a gift from God. And friends, the reason we were set free, the reason the scales were taken off of our eyes, the reason that the blood of Christ was put on the doorpost and the lintel of our, of our hearts is so that we can distinguish between idol worship and using and loving the things that God has given us in a proper and perspective and an appropriate manner. We don't idolize our family anymore, friends, because we know that God has given us with the perp- given children to us. He's given a wife to us or a husband to us with the purpose of husband and wife growing together in godliness and keeping each other accountable and lifting each other up in the Lord. And he's given us children with the purpose of creating little image bearers of Jesus. We don't idolize them anymore. You know, our, our main goals as a Christian, our main goals for our children are not to be on an American Idol. They're not to be super baseball players or softball players or soccer players. It's not to be famous magician, magicians or, or, or musicians, either one. Um, you probably have a better career on the, on the musician part than the magician part, but maybe, who knows. Um, but anyway, it's not for us to, uh, to desire those things uh, All the more it is for us to understand that those things can be used in a good way to the glory of the Lord if they don't become idols in our lives. And we're to surrender those things and give those things to the Lord so that they don't. We don't idolize created things any longer, friends, because we see them as temporal enjoyment and as incomparable to Christ. Too long, friends, we have given our best to idols and we have withheld our best from the Lord. And the worst is that Christians use the abilities that God has given them to further the cause of idolatry. I know this is true. I know this is true because it's been true for me. This is not a a statement of arrogance. It's a statement of where I've really failed in my life. But a lot of things have come easily to me in my life. Um, I've always been pretty good at sports. So when everybody else was busting their tail practicing, I didn't have to give a a lot of effort because I was pretty good and I was content with just being okay. 
I've been relatively smart, so when everybody was busting their tail for A's and, and, and scholarships and stuff like that, I was content with just doing enough to get passing grades. I picked up Christian things pretty easily. It wasn't something that was difficult for me. Things are black and white, and that's one of the reasons that I pick up things is because they're black and white, and I just see it, and I'm like, okay, I can do this. I picked up things, Christian things, pretty easily. So for a long time, I was able to slide by. While other people were pursuing sanctification to a higher level, I was able to balance this idol worship and and this half-hearted commitment to the Lord, giving very little effort. But the Passover tells us that God expects and accepts our best. Our best. I'm so cautious to preach that to you on a regular basis because I want it to us to be reminded all the time of grace alone through faith alone. But friends, we know that that is what God, our best is what God requires from us. He required from them the spotless lamb, their best, their best. We see to the story of the servants that were given the talents where The ones who invested and gave back were rewarded, and the one who buried his gift was punished. To the story of the widow's might, do you remember the story of the widow's might? She had two coins, which was essentially six minutes of one day's salary. That was what the value of her two coins were. And she gave every bit of what she had. And then there were rich people, Jesus observed, there were rich people who came along and they gave a lot of their riches. They gave a lot of their wealth. But proportionally speaking, it was much less than the widow gave. That story is not, it, you, you can take a, an offering uh, perspective from that and that's, that would be okay. But that story is not just about what we give financially to the Lord. That story is about people who have been given so much in their lives, who have been given talents, gifts, and abilities, and they give from their wealth as opposed to from the abundance of their wealth. Whereas the widow gave from the abundance of her wealth. She gave what she had. Friends, I want to tell you the acceptable offering of the Lord especially for those of you who are gifted with intelligence, with abilities, with certain skills that other people have, the, the, the requirement or the, uh, the offering that the Lord accepts from you is from the abundance of your wealth and not just from your wealth. That means the Lord expects you to give your best and not just get by. Not just get by. The famous philosopher Robert Van Winkle said, anything less than the best is a felony. For the widow, that's vanilla ice, by the way. For the widow, her best, thank you for Stephen for getting my dad joke. For the widow, her best was two mites, about six minutes of a daily salary. The Passover teaches us that our freedom to worship is not some excuse to give of our talents but to give of the abundance of what we've been given. To give of the overflow of what we've been given. To stretch ourselves. To not just get by. There are too many American Christians, myself included, who are just getting by when the Lord requires your best. 
it reveals something else to us today, and this is the second point, and this is what I'll end on really quickly. The Passover, reveal, the Passover reveals the propitiation of God's wrath. The Passover reveals the propitiation, P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N, of God's wrath. Like last week, I want to answer a big question for you. Yes, propitiation is a word. So the Passover reveals the propitiation of God's wrath. Something you may have missed here, and I hope that you're going to see now, is this. God's wrath was not just on the Egyptians and the gods of Egypt, but God's wrath was justly on all people in our story. It was on the Egyptians for obvious reasons, but it was also on the Israelites. The wrath of God was about to come down on all of Egypt, and that included the Israelites. Now, to this point, the Israelites had been safe in Goshen, and and they were outside of the catastrophic work of the Lord. But this time, they were going to be in the middle of it, and honestly, friends, deservedly so. The Lord said He would pass through all of the land of Egypt, and He will destroy the Egyptians. But when He gets to the place where the blood is on the doorpost and on the lentils, the destroyer will not go in. But friends, all of Egypt included the Israelites. The Israelites were just as guilty as the Egyptians. First, because they were born into a depraved nature, just like you and I. We're all born into a depraved nature. We're all born into a sin nature. Even if you could lock yourself into a room and commit only one sin your whole life, and that would be excluding yourself from the rest of the world, um, you would still be depraved. You would still be completely guilty, still be completely far away, still be an enemy of God. So the Israelites were born in a depraved nature. That's one reason why they were still under the wrath of God. But there are a few other reasons. In Exodus 5, they reject a prophet of the Lord. They reject Moses in Exodus 5. They said, you have made us a stench to Pharaoh and to his people. They were mad at Moses. They rejected him. But more strongly than this, and you're not going to see this from Exodus, but you're going to see this later in the text of Scriptures, they were idol worshipers. They were idolaters. You remember the verse in Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? That's been on my parents' door for as long as I can remember. And that verse is like awesome. It's cool. It's, it's strong. It's a, it's a rally cry. As for me and my house, you, you serve who you want to. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But remember the beginning of Joshua 24? Do you remember the beginning of Joshua 24? It reveals to us something about the Israelite idolatry. Joshua 24, 14 says this, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Listen to this. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day who you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The Israelites were more than just cultural sinners. They were idolaters, not only in Egypt, but out of Egypt. The Bible says that they did it before the river. Not just in Egypt, but after they left Egypt. They continued worshiping idols. One example of that is how they casted the golden calf and they made the golden calf and they worshiped the golden calf. And because of that, the wrath of God was on them. The wrath of God in the first Pass Passover was meant for the Egyptians and the Israelites, just in case you didn't get that from what I've said over the past two minutes. But the blood, 
But the blood of the spotless lamb was the propitiation of the sins that it, of those that it covered. It placated or it appeased God. It appeased the wrath of God that was going to that was going door by door in every house that night. So what does propitiation mean? Famed theologian R.C. Sproul put it this way, and I think this is the most simplistic way of putting it. The prefix pro means for, so propitiation brings about a change in God's attitude so that he moves from being at enmity with us to being for us. Through the process of propitiation, we are restored into fellowship and favor with him. This is salvation from the wrath of God. How then does the Passover apply to us? Friends, I want to tell you something just wonderful. And it's a small distinction that we see from the Passover, but it's one that will take us miles and miles in our faith. In a sense, Jesus died to save us from our sins. In a sense, he did, because we are sinners and he saves us. But in the most true sense of the work that Jesus did on the cross, we see this from the Passover, is that Jesus, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, died to placate or to appease the wrath of God. And the only way that a sinner can be forgiven is for the wrath of God to be appeased by the spotless blood are the blood of the spotless Lamb of God on the doorpost and the lentils of your heart. Which tells us something much deeper, friends, that we must grasp. We are not some innocent little social or cultural sin committers that we're just God set aside and He's just waiting for us to make a choice. He's just waiting for us to just believe and accept Jesus into our heart as our personal Savior and Lord. We are not just some cultural sin committers. We were not, we were not set apart as a better set of sinners. Do you understand that? I think sometimes our mentality is to believe that we were set apart as a better set of sinners. That Christians are set apart and our sins before God, they weren't nearly, they weren't nearly as bad as the rest of the world. And so they don't really require the same uh, they don't really stir up the same wrath. They don't require the same sacrifice. God was just waiting for his good little kids to just figure it out. That's not where we are. We are not some cultural or social sinners. If we are separated, friends, we are separated along with the rest of the horde of people under the wrath of God. We were all destitute. We were all vile sinners seeking in, sinking in the cauldron of God's Wrath upon wrath. The Israelites were no different than the Egyptians in that distinction. That there must be a propitiation made on their behalf. They were under the wrath of God just like the Egyptians were under the wrath of God. Just like we were under the wrath of God. Friends, we are no different from those in our culture and the world around us in the sense that we either at one time or may even still be, if you haven't repented and believed the gospel, under the wrath of God. 
And for Christians, if not for the blood of Christ, the perfect blood of Christ, we would still be under that wrath. Now, we've, we've studied and we've talked about Romans 5, 8 before, but I want to read Romans 5 and, and just kind of bring it back to you because it's really good in this context. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of uh, his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we have now received reconciliation. Why was God pleased? Because of the blood of the spotless lamb. There's always been a lamb. There's always been a substitute. God provided a lamb as a substitute for Isaac. God provided a lamb as the yearly substitute for the sins of Israel. On the day of atonement, a single animal would, be atone, would atone for the sins of Israel. And what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of these types were leading to the one true perfect Lamb of God. Jonathan Edwards wrote in his A History of the Work of Redemption, Christ and His redemption are the subject of the whole Word of God. Clearly this was true of the first Passover, which like everything else in Exodus, was about Christ and His redemption. To be sure we don't miss the connection, the New Testament says that Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Friends, the Passover lamb was slaughtered as a propitiation for our sins. And this truth should cause us to desire the higher things. And I want to just ask you this, and we'll end with this today. Knowing that God, through his perfect spotless son, has appeased the wrath of God, has placated the wrath of God on your behalf, how do you respond? How do you respond today? How do you respond on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? How do you respond when the temptation is there to put other things before God, to create out of good things idols? How do you respond? What significance, friends, does the work of Jesus on the cross, the spotless Lamb of God, the work of God in redemption, the work of the Spirit in sanctification, what significance does that take in your life? Because if there is not some significant, shining, overbearing conviction or energy or power to want to be more like Jesus, what I want to tell you is you don't know Jesus. And you need to repent and believe the gospel. Because we've said it, I've said it a thousand times in here before, if you get hit with that sort of dynamic power, if you get hit with that sort of dynamic power, that sort of truth, there is no other option in your life but to change and be different and to move and to sort of gravitate towards that truth and that reality. Pray with me this morning.
Lord, you are good and you are true. And your work of redemption, your work to placate the wrath of God for us is something that we are humbled by, that we glory in, and that we praise you for. You are good. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to show your goodness to us, not so that we can be people who hoard your goodness, so that we can be people who use that sense of good to develop an awe in us. And we use that sense of awe to worship you. And we use that awe and that good and that worship to become more like you. And we use all of that to teach other people about you and to make disciples upon disciples upon disciples. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We give you this day. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.